2: Welcome to a special midwinter episode of Dying Arts, a Three Ravens podcast series all about heritage crafts and forgotten arts. I'm Eleanor Conlon, and I'm stringing gilded walnuts for my Christmas tree before inviting my co host Martin Valks to join me for a jolly game of Hunt the Slipper. Eleanor,
1: Eleanor, I found your slipper! <laughs> So the jingling of the sleigh bells has ramped up to a fever pitch as we get closer to Christmas. We've been having a great time with our Adventure, our Christmas countdown loosely based on the song The 12 Days of Christmas.
2: Yes, it's been an excellent excuse to dig up all sorts of bizarre myths and traditions which may have inspired
1: the lyrics of the song. Although we've been manically busy, things are definitely feeling festive here in the Three Ravens' Nest and we've been enjoying meeting friends, hanging up Christmas, decorations, listening to our favourite schmoozy songs and of course hearing from all of you. We love seeing what you've been getting up to, especially on our Three Ravens podcast group on Facebook, so do please keep sharing your traditions with us. If you'd
2: like to enter our Three Ravens Flash Fiction Competition too please just send us up to a thousand words of folk-inspired original fiction to three podcast at gmail.com and we'll give them a dramatic reading on an exclusive episode.
1: So Eleanor, it's the 21st of December and I know you've got your scissors and ribbons and glittery paints and you're all geared up to talk about crafts, but we're also celebrating today, aren't we?
2: Yes, it's midwinter, the shortest day of the year. And I did want to talk about that just a little bit before getting really stuck into the craft projects.
1: Midwinter, Eleanor. Surely you meant to say it's St Thomas's Day.
2: (laughs) It is, but before the church attributed the day to Thomas, celebrating midwinter can be traced back through Norse and Anglo-Saxon Yule customs, to the cult of Mithras, the Persian sun god, and even further back than that, to the Phrygian sun god
1: Attis. Yeah, it goes back some way, doesn't it?
2: It does. Pagans celebrate it as Yule, or the winter solstice. It's opposite the summer solstice on the wheel of the year. Contemporary pagan religions differ greatly in the forms their celebrations and beliefs take, but they generally involve the rebirth of the god figure, perhaps the oak king or the
1: personification of the sun. Yes, the oak king and his counterpart, or perhaps other aspect, the holly king, are figures which represent the summer and the winter, engaging in endless battles which reflect the seasonal cycle of the year.
2: I think it's fair to say that elements of midwinter celebrations, including ideas taken from Saturnalia and the Old Norse, have remained constant. As it's the shortest day and the darkest time of year, the festival usually involves lighting fires and candles, keeping them alight until the shortest day has passed. Mm -hmm. Evergreens such as holly, ivy and conifers are used to decorate, symbolising the eternity of life. The Yule log, a huge log placed on the fire, was kept burning throughout to symbolise warmth and the continuance of life and we still remember it in modern cakes.
1: Yes, the chocolate Yule log is one of your favourites. It
2: certainly is, although when I get my hands on one, it definitely doesn't symbolise the continuance of life for long because (laughs) I've eaten it.
1: So, Eleanor, you've promised me traditional crafts for the festive season. Where do we even begin?
2: Well, the first thing to say is that I'm delighted to report that none of the crafts I'm going to talk about today are on the Radcliffe list of endangered crafts. That's something. Mostly because they're all still practiced in some form or other today yep. they've evolved a little perhaps but we still have examples of most of these and some are really quite widespread but i'd like to start today by talking about a christmas craft which i have a bit of a history with the Ashen Faggot.
1: Yes, excuse me, say that again. <laughs> yes, that really
2: is its name. It's an old English Christmas tradition, which is quite similar to that of the Yule Log, but it has some peculiarities of its own and is also related to the Wassail tradition. Yeah. You ought to feel a bit of an affinity with it as the tradition comes from the West Country, so from Devon and Somerset, and isn't really found outside that area.
1: Yes. Now, Eleanor, how would you summarise or explain what an Ashen Faggot is?
2: Well, I'll describe it so you can all picture it. It's either a large ash log or a bundle of ash sticks, but it must be bound with nine green withies or young ash beams, ideally all from the same tree. On Christmas Eve, it's placed on the fire, traditionally by the oldest person in the room, and then the people who are watching it burn take part in various activities. Such as? What
1: kind of activities would you do while watching your ash and faggot burn? Well,
2: you simply might want to sing dunster carols originating from the village of Dunster in Somerset. The wassail party, presumably after having gone all around the houses wassailing, watched the ash and faggot burn. The withy bindings, being green wood, burst first, sometimes with a loud pop. And it's traditional to toast each burst binding with a drink.
1: And there are nine of them, so it's basically just an excuse to get drunk.
2: (laughs) Well, it is Christmas Eve. (laughs) Sometimes if there are unmarried women in the wassail party, they can each choose a withy and whoever's withy snaps first will be married in the next year, it's said.
1: And is that kind of it for the ashen
2: faggots? Well, not quite. When all the withies have snapped and everybody is well and truly drunk... Each person takes one of the half-burned ash sticks and saves it till the following Christmas when it forms the centre of their own ashen faggot if they're going to host a -hmm. faggot party next year. And this symbolises the continuity of life. Remnants of the ashen faggot are actually supposed to keep smouldering in the hearth during the 12 days of Christmas so that a fire can be raised at any moment with a quick blast of the bellows.
1: And what happens if you don't burn? the Ashen Faggot.
2: Well, I regret to inform you that any household not burning the Ashen Faggot faces years of bad luck and misfortune. Yep. And you also might have a visit from the devil, as burning it helps to keep him away. Now, do we know where the idea actually comes
1: from? So, why ash, for example?
2: Well, it's loosely based on this idea that Mary and Joseph used ash wood to light a fire so they could wash and dress baby Jesus after Mm. he'd been born. Okay. Not sure what that has to do with popping withies and excessive drinking, but (laughs) there we are. It does make sense, though, as ash has a very long history of magical associations.
1: Yeah, we've mentioned quite a few cultural aspects of the ash tree on the podcast before. We've got Yggdrasil, of course, the world tree of Norse mythology. That's an ash tree.
2: The first man in Norse mythology, Ask, was created from an ash branch. And it appears in Greek mythology, too, yeah. associated with the Melii, who are tree nymphs. Now, I only just discovered that dryads are not just casual tree nymphs. Really? No. Dryads are nymphs specifically associated with oak trees, whereas melii are associated with ash trees. Oh, my goodness. They have and their own types. So yeah, they do. This is this was brand new news to me. It's yeah, so well, very exciting. News to me now. I was also reading that um, if you're vampire hunting in Italy, as one does from time to time, yes. make sure you arm yourself with an ash stake as they're believed to be able to reliably finish off fanged aggressors.
1: But only in Italy.
2: Only in Italy. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. So do we have any evidence of... The ash and faggot tradition continuing today, or has it been lost to the annals of time? It
2: does continue today. Quite a few pubs, especially those on the border between Devon and Somerset, still celebrate it. War. The Harbour Inn in Axmouth goes large, quite literally. They build a six foot high and three foot wide ashen faggot for their massive fireplace. Blimey, that's huge. It is, isn't it? Other pubs celebrate on the 6th of January, which is old Christmas Eve. And bets placed on how long it will take the last withy to snap usually go to charity. So it's great that it survived, really. And
1: you said that you'd had a mishap with an ashen faggot you've got to tell us a story.
2: Yes. So a few years ago, I decided it would be really lovely to revive this tradition and try it at home. (laughs) I went for a walk in the woods and I found what I thought was the perfect ash tree. It had fallen in a storm. So there were twigs to snap off to create my bundle. And even better, there were lots of springy green withies growing straight up. It was a little bit of a scramble to get to it through the woods, but I managed to climb onto the tree and walk along the trunk to cut the withies. Just imagine me for a minute trying to be picturesque with my little wicker basket, skipping along, (laughs) and I had almost enough withies, but... I wanted some extra in case they broke while I was assembling the ashen faggot, not having done it before. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't sure. And there were a few growing a bit further down the trunk of the tree where it was a bit thinner because it was mm. near what had been the top of the tree. <laughs> so I kept going, but the tree snapped underneath me, rotten dead wood, and deposited me into what I rapidly discovered was a small pond. Basket, withies and all. <laughs> we've
1: we've actually mentioned Eleanor's uh, habit of falling into bodies of water on the podcast before
2: yes it's sadly not an isolated incident in fairness (laughs) though the ashen faggot was really lovely and i definitely took advantage of the toasting cup after my fall into the very cold water i think i would just choose a safer source of withies in future well are there other
1: things we can do alternatively that aren't perhaps as full of peril
2: well i think we should do something nice and simple and suitable for slightly less intrepid adventurers
1: Let's make a Christingle. Now, I remember Christingles being a staple of school carol services when I was little. Are they particularly ancient? Not terribly,
2: although they bear quite a resemblance to the Pomander, which dates from the Middle Ages. And they do have some of the same features. In case you aren't familiar, a Christingle is an orange with a white candle stuck into it wrapped around with a red ribbon and decorated with cloves dried fruit and sweets yes they often form the basis for Christingle services where children are invited to make their own Christingles and bring them to church to sing
1: carols and where do they come from Christingles
2: they originate from Germany in the 18th century actually a Moravian bishop called Johannes de Waterville is credited with the invention of the Christingle apparently in an attempt to get children to think about Jesus
1: (laughs) I mean I don't understand how decorating fruit helps you to think about Jesus, but you
2: know. (laughs) Supposedly, each of the components represents an aspect of Christianity, and they actually became very popular. Really? Spread by the Moravian Church as part of the Protestant missionary movement. They had a bit of a die off in the early 20th century, but were revived in a big way by a chap called John Pensum who was raising money for the charity the Children's Society in the 1960s in Britain. And they remain very popular today. The charity's still going. And it's estimated that Children's Society Chris Dingle services each year now raise over £1.2 million a year to help vulnerable children. Well, that's awesome. And there are thousands of services held here every year.
1: Oh, that's so lovely. Although strange that a gimmick thought up by a what? Moravian, Did you say a Moravian bishop in the 1700s is a huge charity fundraiser in Britain today?
2: It really surprised (laughs) me because I'd assumed that the idea had evolved from the pomander, which is a fragrant ball of herbs or perfumes or spices intended to protect against infections and the plague, for example, or bad smells or just to perfume the carrier pleasantly. Those can certainly be made from dried, cured oranges studded with cloves. And, you know, you can use them to perfume your sock drawer today. So (laughs) if if we
1: actually want to make our own Christingle, how would we go about it?
2: You will need an orange, which represents the world. Okay. Take one white candle, representing Jesus as the light of the world, Mm -hmm. and stick it into the centre of the orange. Then you take a red ribbon, which represents the blood of Christ – and wrap it around the orange so the blood of Christ is wrapped around the world. Yeah. Anything else you then add is kind of to your taste, but it's usual to use sweets, dried fruit, and cloves either stuck directly into the flesh of the orange or skewered on cocktail sticks.
1: And do these other bits and bobs actually symbolize anything or is it just to decorate it and make it look pretty?
2: They represent the fruits of the earth oh, and the four seasons. Okay. Apparently, Bishop Johannes just used to wrap a red ribbon around a candle. Sure. But his original design was probably, thankfully, embellished somewhat.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, I think we've only got satsumas in the house. So we'll have to make a very small Christingle. <laughs> oh, petite now, Christingle. <laughs> if you, listener, have made a Christingle this year or need something quick to keep the family entertained, please do share your pictures with us. Facebook group, we want to see them.
2: Now, I've got a question for you. What have potatoes got to do with kissing?
1: Um, I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I know that if you eat raw potato, it makes you very ill, and that's going to get in the way of kissing? Am I close?
2: Don't worry. All will become clear right after this.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
2: I think it's time that we talked about the great social divider. Marmite? Not today. Uh I mean, of course, the Christmas pudding. See, I
1: absolutely love Christmas pudding. Don't see why it would divide society? I like all manner of cakes and puddings involve boiled fruit. I'm basically a Victorian at heart, but you're not keen, are you?
2: It's okay in very small doses, but Mm -hmm. you're right, I'd much rather have a Yule log.
1: Well, you're wrong, and I'm hoping you're going to show us all just... Quite how wrong by detailing the rich history of the noble figgy pudding?
2: I'm afraid so. <laughs> the <laughs> earliest reference comes in the 14th century in a truly wonderful recipe book called The Form of Curry. Curry? Curry, um, it's C-U-R-Y, just means cookery. Uh, okay. And form in this context is method, so it's the method of cookery. Right. It's a very extensive recipe book and was attributed to the chief master cooks of King Richard
1: II. Wow, OK, sounds fancy.
2: Sadly, the original manuscript doesn't survive, but nine different manuscripts feature its text. So it was obviously popular and widely used. Right, so
1: they copied it out into Mm -hmm. other books. Yeah, Ah, it's one
2: of the oldest English cookery books and one of the most well-known medieval recipe texts. What's interesting about this is it was actually quite common for cooks to kings and nobles to record their recipes. We don't necessarily think of the Middle Ages as a time when people were writing cookbooks, but yeah. they absolutely were. Well, that's cool. Likely as a way to kind of show off their employer's wealth and status. Maybe, yeah. Not everybody, of course, would be able to afford the expensive spices and flavourings that these cooks used. So... It was basically a bit of a flex. What,
1: who can blame and them? And
2: the form of curry may even have been written as a response to a French text called Les Viandiers to kind
1: of compete with oh, it, to show that English cooking is just as good. Very interesting. So, Richard II was a fan of the Christmas pudding. Is that basically what you're getting to?
2: Maybe, although it took a rather different form to the pudding we know today. In fact, it would be pretty unrecognisable. Oh, go on. It was just called... Figgy spelt F-Y-G-E-Y, <laughs> uh, and was more of a pottage than a pudding. So uh, basically a kind of
1: broth. Ugh, slop.
2: It no. Yeah, definitely slop. It would have included dried and fresh fruit, wine, spices and thickening, though. So most of the essential components of the
1: Christmas pudding. No, I don't know. I'm not convinced. If it's not actually solid, I don't, I don't know, like a Christmas soup. Mm. Well, <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it. But I'm going to read you the recipe from the form of curry. It's pretty simple if we you did want to try it out. OK, all right, Here let's it is. hear it. Take almonds, blanched, grind them, and draw them up with water and wine. Quartered figs and whole raisins. Cast thereto powdered ginger and honey clarified. Seethe it well, and salt it, and serve forth.
1: See, I thought I wouldn't like the sound of it, but actually, it does sound really, really good. Almost like a Christmas milkshake, you mm, know?
2: Christmas kind of milkshakey porridgey. Yeah, it, it could be quite delicious. I could get into that. Well, pottage was very popular. It would have actually been served at the beginning of the meal, though, rather than at the end, the mm-hmm. way we have Christmas pudding today. And that recipe definitely wasn't set in stone because it might also involve breadcrumbs or even some meat or meat
1: stock. Yeah, this is one that I never understood. When you start mixing meat in to get, you know, mince meat, you know, the or- yeah. origins of that term. Yeah,
2: yeah, it would have 100% involved meat. It doesn't today, but it would have been. No, Still, thank you. It really remained a staple, Cottage or frumenty tea was eaten well into the 17th century. Mm. At that point, the figgy pudding as we know it started to emerge from the mists of the kitchen, <laughs> gaining a more solid aspect.
1: Like me after hours standing over <laughs> our hot stove <laughs> making one. <laughs>
2: the description of the 17th century figgy pudding actually makes it sound more like a haggis. Mm. Because although it was still essentially porridge-y in texture... It was cooked inside a skin, like a sausage. Now, that really
1: doesn't sound terribly pleasant.
2: (laughs) No, especially when you consider that the skin would have actually been part of a pig's intestine. (laughs) It was very much a savoury thing, too, rather than a a, a traditional pudding. Served as an accompaniment to roast meat, or even as a starter. Oh, okay, so like a black
1: pudding, or something like that, Sort
2: of, yeah. But it still had the fruit, and the spices, and the wine. It was sort of Christmas soup porridge. Inside a sausage skin.
1: Yeah, but you see, black pudding can be sweet sometimes. Okay, but you know, what I'm into isn't all of this madness. <laughs> I'm into a modern sweet delicious figgy pudding that you have ideally with brandy sauce or brandy cream or some kind of custard. So when do we see the wonderful brandy-soaked sweet pudding that I know and love today? Well, when does that emerge?
2: we have the Victorians to thank. Excellent. <laughs> Good work, Victorians. Although theirs was a conservative culture, they did believe that Christmas should be well celebrated, although they did frown on excessive frolicking. Well, who doesn't? So keep that frolicking to a minimum.
1: I'll do my best.
2: Pudding-based frolics were totally in Though, And it was in the 19th century that the tradition of making the Christmas pudding on Stir Up Sunday was established.
1: Yes, we've mentioned that one before, haven't we? We
2: have. The fifth Sunday before Christmas is known as Stir Up Sunday, inspired by the collect for that day in the Book of Common Prayer. And there are all sorts of lovely traditions associated with Stir Up Sunday and making the pudding. For example every person in the family was supposed to stir the mixture to bring the pudding extra luck for the family in the coming year.
1: Yeah, we normally do that with our Christmas cake, don't we? We
2: do, although it doesn't take us long, being a small family. <laughs> However, I only just read that we should have been stirring the mixture from east to west oh, God. in honour of the journey of the three magi to Bethlehem. Oh, of course,
1: of course. I, I need to get my compass out in order for us to cook our <laughs> oh, Christmas Oh, yes, cake. it's a precise
2: art. <laughs> At <laughs> this point, the Christmas pudding has well and truly taken its place on the international dessert stage it gets much sweeter and the savoury ingredients like meat are left out good this is when we start to see pudding shaped into spheres or into other fancy moulds and either boiled inside a muslin cloth or steamed in a pudding basin. See, now
1: you're talking, Eleanor. Uh, my mouth is literally watering. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. We do still sometimes pop a coin into the Christmas pudding for good luck, Definitely. don't we? Yeah. But the Victorians favoured sticking all sorts of things into oh, it.
1: Hopefully, not anything too scandalous. Mm,
2: much like its close cousin, the 12th day cake, yeah. uh, which comes a little later on in the festive season, they would put in charms or items which signified various fates for the coming year. So it was a little bit like a fortune-telling game, but through eating a slice of pudding. That sounds cool. So, like a silver coin symbolised wealth to come, while a ring represented love and marriage. However, if you got a thimble in your piece of pudding, it meant well, probably a broken tooth, but also certain spinsterhood. No marriage for you.
1: Well, at least on the positive, if you do become a spinster you don't have to share your pudding with any buddy.
2: <laughs> Something I was excited to discover is that brandy butter is actually a traditional Victorian
1: accompaniment to Christmas pudding. See, Eleanor would probably just eat a bowl of neat brandy butter if I let her. But he's put it in front of you and said, look after that. I, don't, I think if I came back, it would be gone.
2: I can neither confirm nor deny the statement. <laughs> but brandy butter in the 19th century was known as Hard sauce. Wow. A name I'm 100% going to be bringing back. <laughs> if you don't have all the usual ingredients to make the delicious sweet treat, though, don't worry, because there's also a recipe for Christmas pudding in Eliza Acton's 1845 book, Modern Cooking for Private Families, which suggests using potato and carrot ah, in your pudding. This
1: is where the potato comes in.
2: Mm-hmm. I, mm, this isn't where the potato comes no? in. This is a different potato. Oh my
1: goodness, you've got so many potatoes <laughs> hidden in this episode. But
2: according to Eliza Acton, this This
1: recipe is cheap and good. I mean, sorry, Eliza, but... I am not convinced.
2: (laughs) That would not have been the thing for Queen Victoria. However, she wasn't convinced. She enjoyed a much more classic dessert pudding. So much so that her private chef, Charles Francatelli, published his recipe for the plum pudding that he made for Queen Victoria. And that is almost identical to those we eat today.
1: Oh, so, listener, if you've made your own Christmas pudding this year, what are you putting into it? Are you stuffing it full of pointed gifts for your guests to bite on? Or are you stirring in some beef stock will hard sauce be on the table as well or are you going to go for a sweet custard let us know via social media now eleanor I'm going to keep going back to it until you tell me. You promised me stuff to do with potatoes. So, what do potatoes have to do with kissing?
2: I'm going to enlighten you. Now, we always hang up either a sprig of real mistletoe or a bunch of artificial mistletoe. Yeah, I
1: mean, any excuse for a festive smooch, quite frankly.
2: But I was reading that the tradition actually comes from a rather more involved Christmas craft – called either The Kissing Bough or Kissing Ball. Yes,
1: let's make one immediately. I'm all for hanging up more kiss-related foliage. So how do we do it?
2: The idea originates in the Middle Ages, and in its original form, The Kissing Ball was a sort of collection of twine and evergreen boughs woven together into a rough ball shape.
1: Yeah, see, this reminds me of the year where you and I tried to make a hawthorn globe.
2: Yeah, that was not a great success. I think this might have been a bit easier than that, as the boughs would still be green and we were trying to use dead hawthorn yeah we were Mm -hmm. (laughs) besides we didn't include a clay figure of baby jesus oh well (laughs) which should have been placed in the center of the kissing ball Uh, then it would have been hung from ceilings to give blessings and good luck to all who
1: passed underneath jesus would have watched everybody kissing i feel a bit strange about that concept Hmm. Anyway, so where does the kissing come in? Because at the moment it just seems like something nice that you dangle with a little baby in the middle.
2: Well, kissing under mistletoe can be traced as far back as ancient Greece during celebrations like marriages. Yes. And there's also evidence that conflicts were resolved underneath mistletoe as a sign of peace. Mm. In our recent Druids episode, actually, we talked about how mistletoe was sacred in Britain with the Druids believing it had magical healing properties. yes. We start to see mistletoe being included in kissing balls by the Tudor period when they start being referred to as kissing boughs. Ah. The structure changes a bit too. The boughs are made with two intertwined hoops covered in evergreen leaves, including bay, holly and, of course, mistletoe. And the baby Jesus figure was sometimes included too to add a degree of good luck to your kissing activities. Well,
1: I mean, on the positive, you'd presume that he'd approve if he was looking down at you as you're mm. doing your snogging at Christmas. But I don't know, i feel a little bit self-conscious if Jesus had his beady eyes on me. Yeah,
2: I think that's why it's sort of gradually fallen out of use. <laughs> yeah,
1: hopefully not out of the kissing bow, you know, to hurt the baby Jesus. Oh, no. Falls. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but there was a caveat. Uh, if you kissed under the kissing bow, you each had to pick a mistletoe berry as proof of the kiss. Oh, you don't do that anymore. No, there was a little rhyme about it too, which goes like this. Pick a berry off the mistletoe for every kiss that's given. When all the berries have all gone, there's an end to kissing.
1: <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I love that one. So it's within our interest, basically, to seek out mistletoe that's incredibly abundant with berries. That's, what I'm, that's what I'm getting from this. Okay, yes. excellent.
2: The kissing bow or ball tradition continued right through and was adopted by the Victorians, who really went to town on it like excellent. everything Christmas. Good. It was they who started to use potatoes. Mm. So the potato would form a firm base from which to build out the ball. Uh-huh. So It's like using a ball of silver foil, but they went for a potato, which presumably would gradually rot over the festive periods. Mm. And they would stick things into it and make it very, very wonderful. Aside from using mistletoe and holly and other evergreens, they used symbolic herbs too. So it probably would have smelled really good. Yeah, and the potatoes potato. yeah. In the 19th century, there was this great revival of Indian interest in the language and symbology of flowers and plants. So they would sometimes include rosemary which signified loyalty, mm. time for courage, etc. Yeah yeah sure. They were also fans of using glitter or other homemade sparkly alternatives. Mm -hmm. I found a Victorian recipe for indoor frost, which involved painting holly leaves or any kind of evergreen that you're using for decorating with egg whites and then scattering a mixture of cornflour and salt crystals over them, which would sort of dry hard and then sparkle in the candlelight.
1: Yes. I mean, using a basic glue and salt crystals, that is an ancient practice. We know that that has been going on for Ages and ages and ages. So
2: it's really beautiful. It
1: is. I, I mean, I think there's a tendency to think of glitter as being a very modern thing, but no, it's not. So, Eleanor, this all sounds very jolly. Uh, what about the most important pillar of festive decoration, though? The Christmas tree. It's
2: funny you should mention it because when the Christmas tree tradition arrived in England as late as the eighteen forties, people were actually quite snooty about it. And because they were worried that it would become so popular it would replace the kissing bow. Which
1: I suppose it did actually, really. Well it did.
2: We don't have the kissing bow in our homes anymore as a matter of course, and we do mostly have the Christmas tree. Mm. Most people were so taken with the idea of this prettily decorated little tree surrounded by a presence that it started to filter into homes all over the country, especially after an engraving of Victoria and Albert enjoying a Christmas tree with their five children appeared, making this, what was a German tradition, a mainstay of English Christmas culture too.
1: Well, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm wandering around in this dark time of year and I look inside people's houses, there's something surreal and joyful about seeing a tree inside you know, the world upside down idea is something we've talked about a lot in relation to Christmas. But that idea of bringing nature into your house so you can enjoy it and it can be part of your life. I think that's just a wonderful thing. It, it makes me happy every time.
2: It does. It's very magical. And I think, you know, seeing that engraving of the, the Queen and the consorts enjoying such a simple pleasure. Everyone wanted a piece of that. Mm. Although I was reading that the Christmas tree that that's Prince Albert's family sort of brought over. Yeah was originally much smaller and you would have one for each of you.
1: Really? Yeah
2: so you would have a little tabletop sized Christmas tree for you yeah. and I would have one for me and I would put presents for you under yours and you'd put presents for me under mine. Oh that's so cute. would so have one each other, lovely. and sort of decorate it for each other with things you wanted to give to each other. Whereas
1: we just try and get the biggest possible tree we can and then bring it home when it doesn't fit, then figure no, out how we're going to trim it.
2: Top a bit off the top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Christmas trees had been used in Europe for much longer. Yes. It was just in the 1840s that we get them over here as part of this kind of grand Christmasening that sure, occurred.
1: sure.
2: Believe it or not, the invention of the decorated Christmas tree is actually attributed by some
1: to Martin Luther. Whoa. See, I know Martin Luther for nailing things on church doors, but putting decorations on trees i wouldn't have suspected that
2: apparently he's said to have been the first person to add lighted candles to an
1: evergreen tree i mean i don't regret it because i absolutely love decorating the christmas tree but i do think it's a bit sad that the kissing bough has fallen out of common use i have to say though Good thing we don't put candles on trees inside our houses anymore. No. Dangerous. At,
2: at hazard. <laughs> well, let's make a kissing bow next Christmas. Okay, cool. Optional figure of Jesus.
1: Although well, I'm not <laughs> putting a potato in it. No way. <laughs>
2: there are so many wonderful and fun traditional Christmas crafts, honestly. While we've got time, I just want to talk about the origins of the Advent calendar.
1: Yeah, how old is that tradition?
2: Not that old, but long before Elf on the Shelf, we have references to people marking the season of Advent in some way, mm. even by burning coloured candles as part of an advent crown or making chalk marks on walls to count down. But the advent calendar, as we actually know it, is the invention of a man called Garrett Lang, or actually his mother, who generously taped a suite to a piece of cardboard for him to celebrate each day of Advent. (laughs) And Garrett loved this idea so much that when he'd grown up and set up his own printing business, he produced the first commercially available Advent calendar in 1908. So it was actually fairly modern. Yeah, I
1: like that we know his name, though. Well done, Gerhard and your mum. This has (laughs) all got me really in the mood for some festive fun. Now, you mentioned at the top of the episode... The game Hunt the Slipper. Is this a game we can actually play?
2: It is. It's a historical party game, which involves passing an object round while a person closes their eyes and counts to 10. When they finish counting, they have to guess who's hiding the object about that person. Oh, it doesn't have to be a slipper? No, it can be anything. I mean, it could start being a slipper, but you can repeat as many times as you like with multiple objects. I mean, I think I saw an episode of Taskmaster recently when they were basically playing Hacker Slipper. So it still sort of goes about (laughs) now. I must say, when I read what it actually was, it wasn't what I've pictured. I've heard of the game Hunt the Slipper, but I had imagined this much more boisterous game of running all over the house in search of a hidden shoe. Yeah, well. Which had perhaps sweets in it or something. That's what I thought it was. I
1: think if you've been drinking a lot on Christmas, the last thing you need is to be running about. No, that's
2: true. A nice still game guessing who's hidden the slipper behind their Christmas pudding belly. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a
1: big fan of a Christmas board game for keeping everyone awake while they're so full of food that they (laughs) risk slipping off into slumber just keep jostling them awake because it's their turn
2: (laughs) (laughs) i also mentioned gilded walnuts you did which i think are really beautiful christmas craft which i'd like to bring back it's suitable for all the family too so you can do it all together although yeah. an adult person should probably be
1: on hand to pierce the holes so that'll be me then i mean eleanor like falling into bodies of water has a habit of stabbing herself <laughs> yes <laughs> there are parts of eleanor's fingers where she has no sensations because she's severed nerves.
2: yes some of my nerve endings will never be the same nope After some injuries related to sharp, pokey things. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But for gilded walnuts, all you'll need are some walnuts, of course, some gold or silver paint, some colourful ribbon and some paper. Crack your walnuts carefully, being sure to preserve each half of the shell. You can eat the delicious walnut inside and then paint the shells with the gold or silver paint. Mm. Then gently make a little hole so that your walnut can be hung from the Christmas tree or indeed the kissing bough. Then you can roll up a tiny scroll of paper containing a fortune or a good luck message or something cute to somebody you love. Yeah. And you roll it up, pop it inside the walnut, tie it closed with ribbon and then use it to decorate. If you're like me and you can't peel an avocado without going to minor injuries, you can just tie a ribbon around the walnut and hang it from the tree that way.
1: She's not joking about minor injuries, by the way. That, that's not. happened. Quite serious injury.
2: <laughs> but your walnuts can then be opened on New
1: Year's Day. Oh, so it's like a little hidden message that sits there through Christmas. And yeah, then...
2: exactly. Tradition says you mustn't open them until then. Uh-huh. Although I think they make really beautiful decorations too to keep from year to year. So once, once you've made them once, So you can keep them and put new fortunes or messages in them each year. Yeah,
1: I think I'd have the opposite problem, which is that in cracking the walnut shell, I'd just end up with shards of it everywhere – but I have been saying I wanted to do some Christmas crafts, so I'm glad I've got so many to choose from now. Crafts?
2: You, sir, have a Christmas cake to make.
1: Yes, I have to confess, I missed Stir Up Sunday by a long way. But hey, at least the cake will be extremely fresh.
2: I can't wait.
1: <laughs> so we'd love to know which Christmas crafts you've been enjoying this year. Any raven shaped gingerbread, perhaps? Have you got your own tale of misadventure with an ashen faggot? <laughs> if so, do please get in touch with us by tagging us on social media or by emailing us at three ravens podcast at gmail.com
2: that's also the place to send us your thoughts or your entries to the three Ravens flash fiction competition up to 1000 words please or you can get in touch with us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast instagram at three ravens podcast and X at three ravens pod
1: and if you are enjoying the podcast please consider supporting us by subscribing to our patreon at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast we have lots of exclusive goodies and next week our new three ravens film club episode all about 1965's quite down will be coming out otherwise we will return tomorrow with our next advent treat and on monday of course we have our three ravens christmas special
2: until next time then while the ashen faggots burn down that way we'll go this way and remember don't
1: whistle until you're out of the woods
2: our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour. And our logo is by Ollie James Dare.
1: The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Volks Thanks for listening. God sent every
2: gentleman